Your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, host of Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people all over the world whose positive actions are inspiring positive achievements. Exceptional people rise to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. ChrisKnoll.com. C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Sign up for email updates from my website, YourPositiveImprint.com. Listen to my podcast from my website or any podcast platform. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite podcast platform. And thanks for listening. And the winners of the drawing are Marcos of Brazil and uh, Yada, I think, of Czech Republic. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you, everybody, for entering the drawing. I appreciate it. And I am going to contact some of the guests and have them do an update. It will be exciting. Thank you so much. Your positive imprint. What's your P.I.? Today is Memorial Day here in the United States, and there's a bit of history on how it came about, but I'm not going to discuss that today. Memorial Day is a day that we honor those fallen men and women who died serving in the United States military. But I would like to honor all of the veterans who have served and are serving. My mom, Victoria Sanchez, is on the phone, and she's going to share a Memorial Day story today. Following my mom is my guest, military pilot, Milton Herman. Catherine, I had a cousin, Laverne, who served in World War II. Uh, he was on my father's side, and his father had served in World War I, Laverne's father. Along came World War II, and everyone was very patriotic. Laverne was underage. He wanted to enlist, and so his father signed the papers that he could enlist, and he enlisted uh, in the air service. At that time, he was uh, not quite out of high school, so his father uh, got his diploma during graduation week. Laverne did part of his basic training at Harlingen Base in Texas, and from there he was sent to England. And he was a tail gunner on a B-25. And then later he transferred uh, to, I think, a B-17, a bomber. It was a very large bomber. And uh, I think it was known as the Flying Fortress or something. They flew missions over Germany, on Austria, etc. It was the custom after they completed 50 missions that they would get R&R. On his 50th mission, the plane was shot down on December 11th, 1944, over Austria. All on board were killed with the exception of two and the two were the radio operator and the co-pilot. December 24th, 1944, my uncle and aunt got the telegram saying that Laverne was killed in action. Christmas Eve they received that? That was Christmas Eve. In 1946, his body was returned, uh, I believe it was January, for a memorial service, and the whole town turned out for the memorial service. I was young, 
but I remember they were all there. It was in the Methodist church. Uh, Laverne had a fiancé who was crying and crying, and my aunt told her that Laverne would have wanted her to get married and, and to be happy. So his father was uh, really devastated. He and Laverne were going to open after the war a radio and model, uh, one of those model kit stores in Waterloo, Wisconsin. He never did. They also never had a Christmas after that. And Laverne had a younger sister who was in high school at the time. His brother Victor served in the U.S. Navy and came home from the war. So that's the story of Laverne. But I'd like to share uh, some other stories very briefly. My mother had two brothers who served in World War II. Uh, they were Clarence and Elmer, and they were both doctors. Elmer was one of the first doctors uh, at Dachau, and after several days of treating the survivors at Dachau, he couldn't uh, take it anymore, and he had to be transferred to England. His brother Clarence was also a doctor and was in the Normandy invasion on D-Day. He was in the Battle of the Bulge, and he received the Bronze Star and the Silver Star. My husband's father, Julius, served as a pilot on the Jenny Glider in World War I. My husband, Roger, during the Korean War, was an Air Defense Command, and he was a navigator. Our son-in-law, Glenn, served in Vietnam in the U.S. Army. Our grandson, Michael, served in the U.S. Navy, first in submarines, in the submarine duty, and then in intelligence. So to all the veterans, I will forever give thanks. To all who served and sacrificed, you were all heroes. God bless you all. Milton, hello. It's so good to have you. Hi. And sitting here at the table, we have Mary, his wife of how many years, Mary? 84. Uh, well, no, no, no. That's how old you are. That's how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> I've been married all my life. We've been married, we've been married about 57 years. That's <laughs> <laughs> <It was> close. <laughs> well, congratulations on the 57. And then their daughter, Michelle. <laughs> I am daughter number one, or the favorite daughter. You can say that, too. <laughs> and Michelle and I have known each other for a number of years. We went to high school together. And of course, that piano introduction is Milton himself at the piano. He is a singing military pilot as well. Well, unfortunately, Mary, Milton's wife, who is heard here on this episode, passed away recently. And this episode is, of course, dedicated to Mary. Milton Herman was born in 1929 during the era deemed as the Great Depression. He explains what it was like growing up during that time. I grew up in Las Vegas, New Mexico, which was right on the southwestern edge of uh, all that Dust Bowl stuff was going on then. But it didn't hardly impress me, and I didn't really know what was going on until years later when I read about it. 
to the north and northeast in Oklahoma, the Panhandle, it got so bad there that all of their prairie lands turned into just sand dunes. And we didn't have any of that in Las Vegas. So I really didn't know what was going on. So, yep, depression days. But again, I was taking care of fine and I wasn't involved with finances or anything. I was just a little boy. I think I had a pretty normal growing up. Uh, I had a cousin living right next door to me and he and I played together uh, almost continuously up to about six or seven years. So then after that, went to school, and I don't think that was much different than most people in the area. What were you involved in curricular activities? Were yeah, I went to Catholic school. They encouraged us to do things, which I went along with. I learned to play the clarinet because one of the nuns taught me that. I even gave a concert. Well, I can't believe I did that. I was probably only <laughs> about 10 or 11 years old. I got up on the stage and played the clarinet. And they also organized for St. Patrick's Day and helped the kids make booths. They made arrangements with the business people, and so we would sell candy or popsicles and that kind of stuff, so I learned a little bit of business. I can remember in the seventh grade, got to go to one of the nicer classrooms. <laughs> when I first started out, the teachers usually had, like, I was first and second grade, one teacher, all in one room, probably about 60 kids, 50 wow. kids. Wow. But that didn't seem to hurt too much. I had a pretty good grade school. I didn't live very far from school, so I used to walk to school. I marvel at my mom because when I entered uh, first grade, we were about eight or ten blocks from school, and she walked me to IC School, Inaccurate Conception School, which was near the fire department, the first day. And then the second day, she asked me if I could do it by myself, and I said, sure, and I can remember doing that. went to eight blocks by myself. <laughs> I thought it was no sweat, but she must have really been worried. Milton explains where he was on December 7th, 1941. One thing I remember is uh, I happened to be listening to the radio when the Japanese hit Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December. I was listening to the radio in my grandparents' room and my folks, and I think maybe an aunt and uncle, six of them, they were playing cards in the kitchen. So when the announcement came over the attack on Pearl Harbor, what I went in and told them about it, they just sort of listened and there wasn't much we could do. And I don't remember doing much of anything. They went back to playing cards, and I went back to listening to the radio. <laughs> the war was going on, uh, and I remember my dad joined either a local guard or a state guard because I can remember him uh, having a rifle and going out and, and guarding the dam one night at Story Lake. And Story Lake, for the listeners, that happens to be the reservoir. That's the reservoir, for... which was for the farming in uh, northern Las Vegas, about five miles out of town. So that was important. If it had been destroyed, it would have caused a lot of trouble. A couple of times put up blackout curtains, but not very often because we couldn't imagine anybody flying all the way to Las Vegas, New Mexico <laughs> to bomb us. So I don't think we paid too much attention to that. I grew up in New Jersey, 25 miles from New York City. So we had blackout curtains. They were like draperies. And before it was time to turn out lights in the house, covered all of the windows, all, the whole house, every window. And the idea was if there was an attack or Japanese or German planes flying overhead, they wouldn't be able to see anything. So everybody had blackout curtains. There were air raid wardens that went around to check. And if they caught you without using your blackout curtains, I don't know what the penalty was, but it was pretty severe. Everybody goes to the coastline had blackout yeah. curtains. Everybody did. And the businesses as well? Every, oh, everything. Everything. Oh, yeah. Absolutely everything. Sheltered, too. Because a light in the dark is seen for oh, a long way out. Right. Everybody had it. And now Las Vegas, New Mexico, the, the railroad 
that was yeah. at one time a pretty important hub and over there. And I can there. remember the regular steam engines uh, coming through there because and I used to deliver papers and run all around that downtown because the town's only two or three or four blocks long anyway. That and then right as the war was ending, they switched to the diesel. While it was going on, there were a lot of trains through Las Vegas with troops and materials and that kind of stuff. I still remember quite a bit of that. Mm. There were a lot of trains everywhere because that yeah. was really pre-airlines. There were airlines, but, but not, not commercial airline activity like there is now. So everything ran on trains. And so there was always a concern of them being attacked. Since yeah. we were also about 10 or 15 miles from Picatinny, which was a major arsenal. And so there was always a concern. And of all things, Picatinny. later on, that's where her folks arranged for that's our, we, uh, our wedding, wedding reception. Was oh. reception. <laughs> they had a golf Picatinny course. They had a golf course there. How appropriate. Uh, <laughs> my dad knew somebody and got access to using the club at Picatinny. Yeah. Yeah. Picatinny's still there, still a major arsenal. Mary and Milton share their sweetheart story, which includes Christmas cookies. Dad was in the coal business. He had gone to school in Chicago. And as that war was going on, I learned from my uncle, David, found out from his uh, friend Condon going to school in Chicago that he had met a girl that was born in Brooklyn, and he got married to her. And I can remember either thinking or telling my uncle, Brooklyn, what in the How did he ever meet a girl from Brooklyn? I'll never marry a girl from Brooklyn. So then we meet in Phoenix, she's born in Brooklyn, and we got married. So I married a girl from Brooklyn. I was working for a little local service airline, which doesn't exist anymore. It just went down the tubes a few years ago. And it had a flight that came through that left Phoenix at 7.40 in the morning. It went to Yuma, El Centro, San Diego, Santa Ana, Los Angeles, stayed there for a little while, went to Riverside, Palm Springs, Las Vegas, stayed there for a couple hours, to Kingman, to Prescott, to Phoenix at 7.50 at night. It was gone 12 hours and 10 wow. minutes. It was a killer <laughs> up and down. You know, airlines, and they still now do their the crews bid according to seniority. And that was a killer. So nobody wanted it. And so I bid a full schedule of that flight, which was 12 flights. Couldn't fly two in a row because you, you didn't have time rest time in between. I bid a full schedule of that, which was 12 a month. So I worked 12 days a month flying on this killer thing. And so you were exhausted, and, and Milt showed up, and he well, literally no. swept you off your feet. Then later on, I got Las a chance. Vegas, there were some girls there that worked for this little Bonanza Airlines. And they knew some Air Force pilots in Phoenix and had some Christmas cookies, I believe it was. Yes, Christmas Christmas cookies. cookies. And I had the next flight, so they gave them to me to take. And you had two 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 of your roommates were Bob, Bob Sutton and Bob Apple. Right. One of them or both of them, I don't remember, met me at the airport for the cookies. And then sometime after that, I went out on a date with one of them, I can't remember. And uh, we went out to dinner in some place and went back to their house afterwards. And Milt was the third roommate. And that's how we met that, yeah, that night. That's how we met. And a couple of weeks later, I think he was desperate for a day for a squadron party. So he <laughs> called, <laughs> called me. 
And I thought, well, there's a lot of good looking guys out there. Of course, I'll go on a date with this guy. (laughs) (laughs) And you were already in the military. Yes. So you've traveled around. I started out in the Air National Guard, in the Army National Guard in Las Vegas. So my very first duty station was my hometown because we had 90 millimeter anti-aircraft guns and they needed to be loaded on the railroad to go down to Fort Bliss, where which is going to be my first station. So actually, I was uh, active duty for one whole month in my hometown. And then we got shipped through here, stopped in Sandia to get physicals. We got back on the trucks, we had a convoy, and we went down to Fort Bliss, and that was our first duty station. And then uh, it turned out... Uh, some of the people in my hometown had arranged for me to have a, an appointment to one of the academies, and I ended up with one right out of high school to Annapolis. And out of three or four guys that got those appointments, which were arranged by our high school, I was the only one that went down and took the exam out of the three or four of them, which was at the post office. So I had a whole day taking exams, and I didn't pass that. I passed a couple of the subjects, and that was just about the time they had started. If you could pass certain exams, you could get college credits. So I get a kick out of the fact that I passed two of the subjects, so I got six credit hours from Annapolis, and I've never even gone there. (laughs) (laughs) So then later on, since I didn't pass that, now also I was busy. I was learning lines from a play, and I was in the band and going to college. So I, I never did much preparation for it, just took the exam. So then uh, I went to college there for three years, and then my National Guard outfit got uh, federalized. I was 21 on the 2nd of August of 1950 and got promoted to warrant officer junior grade, and I became the administrative officer of the battery. And so then we got federalized on the 14th of August and became in the Army. So we worked in my hometown getting all that equipment loaded, and then I had to do a lot of paperwork, and then we got on the truck convoy, our own trucks, and went down to Fort Bliss. Then I had another appointment. This time it was to West Point. And while uh, November, December, while I was down to Fort Bliss, I found out there was a reg that if I wanted to, I could apply for a prep school for those academies. They already had that kind of stuff going on. So I applied for that. And then so I got transferred from my unit to a prep school at uh, Stewart Air Base, New York, which is only about 20 miles from West Point. And so I got sent to that in January, and they just prepped us on math and English and history and physical activity to get us ready for the physical exam and the mental exam. I did it January 51. So by the time that was over, I'd passed both the physical exam and the mental exam, and I had a fifth appointment from Congressman Montoya here in New Mexico. I found out that his principal, all of them have... uh, a principal, and then four others that can take it up. So they hope the principal will pass the exam and get in, but if they don't, then they got a second down through the fifth. I was fifth. Found out that my principal passed, so I didn't have an appointment anymore, but I'd passed everything. So the policy was for that school at Stewart Air Force Base to encourage us to take leave and go to Washington and talk to our congressman and see if we couldn't get a different appointment. So I did that. I got dressed up in my military uniform, went to Washington, D.C., met with Mr. Montoya. He said, no, I don't have any, and all mine are full, but Senator Dennis Chavez may have an empty one. I understand his principal didn't pass. I'll call him. So he called up, talked to Dennis Chavez, and said, yeah, I got one. Well, I have this young man here that would like to have it. Okay, he can have it. So that's how I got into West Point, there on the 2nd of July of 1951. Graduated on 6th of June, 1955. So what were your responsibilities after graduation? 
Well, I became a second lieutenant. Now I switched from the Army to the Air Force. And so then I got sent to pilot training. And I did that down at uh, Mission, Texas, which is near McAllen, Texas, near the river down there in the southern part. We go through a couple of phases. That's called uh, at basic and primary, primary training. So I flew a couple of prop job airplanes there and then went to Big Spring, Texas to start learning how to fly jets, which I flew the T-33, which the single seat of that T-33 was our first jet fighter for our country. So I got my wings in in October of, uh, I guess, 56, and uh, got assigned to go to advanced training because you just learn how to fly to get your wings. Advanced training is learning how to shoot the gun, drop the bombs, and fire rockets, and all that kind of stuff, and fly formation, quite a bit of formation. So I went to Luke for that, and uh, driving my own car all by myself, I can still remember driving into the Phoenix Valley. I was opposite uh, Superstition Mountain when it was 95. I didn't have an air conditioner in my car. The training was a different airplane and flying jets again. I happened to like that, and they needed instructors. And so when I graduated, they asked if anyone wanted to volunteer. And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd always like to teach. So I volunteered and got the assignment. So then I went home for leave. And when I got back, they stopped me at the gate and said, well, your orders to Nellis at Las Vegas, Nevada are canceled. You're to stay here. So then I became an instructor and I taught there about nine, eight or nine years. So I was essentially an advanced fighter instructor for about eight or nine years which I liked very much. And we need the instructors and we need those positive imprints that oh, are being yeah. instilled in well, others. In and fact, were you ever deployed? No. I uh, had people around me that would get picked up, but at the time I was teaching academics, running a simulator, and also teaching flying on the flight line. So I was doing about everything that's possible to do with the airplanes. And I could have been assigned because I was willing to go anywhere, anytime. Of course, I never told anybody that, but I would have. <laughs> <laughs> and so... And I got a few TDYs. Uh, one of them made me pretty angry. I was part of the Apollo program for the moon landing. So I got called to go to a medical facility in San Antonio where they checked all kinds of things to see what fighter pilots are made out of, is what we were told. So I didn't do any flying there. They, we just did medical procedures. So checked our eyes, checked our reactions, put us in front of machines, uh, checked our... <laughs> bodily functions. One of the things I disliked the most was they would spin us in a dental chair and then they'd drop ice water in my ear and it would make your eyes oh. jitter and they'd, they'd time it and look at it. And actually that affected me even a few months later would occasionally give me a little... Oh, he was uh, mad. Uh, I got, it was essentially torture because they were doing all kinds of things to you only what all at once. What was the purpose? To just check, I guess, the things that fighter pilots were used to doing. Well, they want a healthy body. Yeah, all those astronauts were flying jets. I don't really know because they never told us too much. <clears throat> One time I sat before a big panel which had lights flashing to hit the switch, do that switch, and so we're doing that as fast as we could. Meantime, they had sensors stuck in my scalp, so they were recording brain waves. And, uh, and I spent a whole half a day doing, maybe twice, doing that. And a couple of other things which I didn't like very much. I think I did it for four weeks. So I was essentially, yeah, I was pretty angry and really couldn't complain about it because supposedly I had volunteered to help them out on that program, so I didn't have any excuse. (laughs) (laughs) So I never complained to anybody. Oh, my goodness. And I knew it was for a good purpose, too. So Then also I was uh, selected one of the three pilots to set up an F-104 program for the Germans. So we did that in 1962, 63. I got 
was placed in charge of setting up the academic program. They came here and they'd go to a school for, even if they could speak English, they'd go to a school to get more English training than they'd come to us. They were already pilots, so they had their wings from Germany. And then we would teach them the airplane and how to use it. And that airplane was a little more modern, had a radar in it and a nurse and navigation system in it. And so we would fly, practice atomic bomb deliveries and uh, shooting wow. the guns. I participated in flying F-84Fs, which was a slant-wing single-seat fighter. And then I helped establish the program for the F-104. It was a two-seater F-104F and F-104G models. Uh, we had some single-seaters, which we used most, and we'd use a two-seater to get them checked out on the airplane, and then we'd fly formation. So... As an instructor, I'd fly lead, usually a flight of four, and we'd go down the range and do what kind of training we were working on. And sometimes we'd go out in the area and chase each other, like World War II fighting. So I thought that was really pretty neat. <laughs> Playing games. <laughs> well, they were, but they're very serious. And of course, serious. That's, yes, we were going course, at 400 and 500 miles an hour. So, well, in fact, one of my teachers, when we were a little before that in the F-100 program, got hit by his wingman and had to bail out. Then he was scared to death he was going to land. There's a couple of lakes on the Colorado River. He thought, sure, he's going to land in that, and he couldn't swim. So he kept. He tells us that he was afraid he was going to drown in those lakes. Then you come down sort of slow, and when you sort of regain your senses, he said, oh, well, I'm quite a ways away from those lakes, so I guess I'm okay. <laughs> so he landed on the ground and got rescued by our rescue people and was okay. Did you have to practice bailout? We would have How a simulator you... in the simulator okay, so where we could simulator. pull the handles, and it would had enough power to make raises of four or five or six feet. And then we, we were trained to let loose of those handles, and then everything's automatic. Once you get out in a few seconds, we, there was a strap that would push us out of the seat, separate, seat separator. And then a half a second or a second or so later, then the chute would be pulled automatically. And all that happened automatically. So if you were unconscious, it would still happen. It would still open. But I never had to do that. My friend that I was telling you about that also taught me later, that happened to him. He had to pull it. In fact, he said the airplane was pulling so much, and when you're up there, the plane can move in different ways. And then, like when you make a turn on a car, you feel a little G that wants to push you off. Well, we get up to four Gs, which is four times your body length, and it was probably more than that. And he couldn't grab the handles. Finally, one hand happened to land on one of the handles. That we had one on each side of the seat. And so he pulled that, and that's how he got out of the airplane, or he would have been killed. So we did live in a rather dangerous environment, but we all seemed to like it, so we never thought about that much. Yeah, my dad was a navigator in the Air Force. Well, in the, in the fighter airplane, he would have gone through the same training. And for a navigator, the risk is pretty high because you have your navigation board sitting yeah. there. So if you eject... What do you do with that? There's nothing you can do except your knees hit it and you yeah, break your right. legs getting out. So that's why we had to be certain height in fighters... Because they would measure our seat distance from our rear end to the canopy so that if we fired out, our knees wouldn't hit it and get cut off. And they had that happen to a few guys that were real tall, and they had to eject, and it decapitated their knees. So then we couldn't be a fighter pilot unless we met that distance. And we got checked with that. They measured us. So the service is pretty exciting sometimes. (laughs) Well, actually, I, I agree. And so what were some of your practice missions well, for a, an example would be um, we would meet an hour before takeoff time. I'd have uh, three students. We would fly a flight of four, so we'd take two off at a time, join up, and fly from Luke Air Force Base down to Gila Bend, which was about 60 or 70 miles. 
and would change frequencies, get a hold of the operator of the range because the range, they were trying to keep us safe and not get killed while we're on the range. And so we would check in with them, we would fly over and then we'd pitch out one at a time, so many seconds. We usually started out strafing. So oh, so you would practice wave. your formation? Oh, yeah, we're okay. because that's part of four-ship flight. That's our war yeah. system. I, and, so yeah. I had a few classmates that just couldn't handle that, so they got wiped out of the training And program. what makes them not be able to handle the formation? Is well, it the Well, I think it's your personality and how interested you are. And some guys just get so nervous that they just can't. And you know, you got to be pretty calm. Sometimes we would overlap our wings, but most of the time we tried to stay about six inches apart. But And then we would stack it a little bit, so... One airplane would be here and our wings would be underneath yes. and it would be stacked. But if you moved it, oh, in fact, on the F-104, if we got too close, the high velocity of the air would suck you in and you would hit it. So we had a, I guess they found that out when they were building the airplanes and testing them that that would happen. We always briefed a safety procedure. So we would brief the ejection or what if you lost electrical power or what if you lost the engine and what would you do? In a flight, we would help each other. And if possible, come back with whoever had trouble. And that didn't happen very often, but it happened occasionally. Well, it happened to me once. In the F-100, it would have had a bad habit of uh, backfiring. So instead of the flame going out the rear, sometimes it would come out the front. Obviously, something's wrong when that happens. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Just a little mistake. I was, I was given an instrument training mission at that time, and that happened to me. So I had to declare an emergency, and I flew back uh, uh, to Luke Air Force Base and did an emergency pattern. What we do is we try to hit a high point where if we actually flamed out, we could circle down and make it. So we do that, and I did that, and I wanted to make sure I got to the runway, so I was a little bit higher higher and a little bit faster. And so when I got there and was ready to land, I was going to be very long. So I popped speed brakes to slow me down. All the airplanes had speed brakes, put the flaps down. And so then I did land long. That airplane happened to have anti-skid brakes, but we were to press on the brakes as hard as we could and it would cycle. Well, the temptation is to want to pump them yourself, but we, we get a little training and say, no, you just keep pushing on them because it's automatic and it's all done for you. And they found out it stops quicker if you just keep the pressure on. So I get stopped. Then I'm getting close to the end of the runway, and I hope I don't hit the barrier because all the jet fighter bases have a barrier where if you go off the runway, your wheels will pick up a web thing to stop you. So that you don't go into the next cornfield and, oh, yeah. oh, my gosh. and cross the irrigation oh. ditch. And so I, then I got worried about that, but I got stopped and I got off the side and okay, no sweat. My student gets out of the airplane, goes back to the squadron, and I start to unbuckle and I can't unbuckle. Then I'm shaking like a leaf. Calm, cool, made radio calls, but as soon as I got it stopped and everything, and then I couldn't get out of the cockpit for 30 minutes. So all that you know is affecting you, even though outside you're pretty calm and cool. But when it was over, the chaplain even came up on us. Are you okay, Captain Herman? Yes, sir. I just can't get out of the cockpit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then after that, then I was fine. From what my dad used to tell, because dad was in a lot of emergency situations. He was uh, Korean War, and their their job was air defense. Mm -hmm. And when they did have an emergency situation, no more missions for that day, and sometimes for two days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even if they didn't have another pilot and another navigator, they didn't send them back up because of... Yeah, because of the physical thing that right. affects everybody. Yeah. And even if you're really yes. pretty strong and sort of used to it, it still happens to you. So I want to ask you, you were in the military during a couple of different wars. Mm -hmm. So Korean War, Vietnam War. What was it like being in the military, the military during wartime? 
How, is that different? I think it's different, but most of the time the guys doing it are young and they really don't, are not so terribly worried about dying, I don't think, or we're risk takers. So there's an anxiety and, and you know what you're training for. I was training to, to fight. Uh, that's why I was shooting guns air to air and on the ground. We'd do an air to air mission. We'd have a T-33 that would tow a thousand foot steel cable with a 10 foot deep canvas cloth that was 20 feet long. And we would hit a switch and that would unroll when we got down on the range and the airplane would be like this and the cable would hang the target down about here. Then we as fighters, the fighter forward, come in and shoot at that target, pull back up and shoot at that target while it's going. So we got air to air training too. And, and all that's pretty exciting just by itself, learning how to do it <laughs> sure. without running into that, we called it the rag. You don't want to hit it because at the front of it, in order to keep it straight like that, was a steel pipe with a weight on it. So if you hit that, it'd probably tear your airplane apart and you'd either get killed or you'd have to bail out. Either way, it's pretty frightening. <laughs> right, right. Oh, my goodness, So we were yes. pretty careful with that, and some guys couldn't hack that. But in fighters, that was our primary business, and that's what we were training to do all the time. So I got pretty good at some of that stuff. Maybe not the best, but I was good at it. <laughs> or I wouldn't have and lived. It. Oh, yeah, I liked it. Well, it's a challenge. It's like playing a game, you know, playing a basketball game. You're out there to win and to come back alive. <laughs> Captain Herman was in the National Guard during the Korean War. Well, there I was in that National Guard unit, and I was the administrative officer. So I was a platoon leader. I was in charge of a, either a three or four squad, about nine men per squad, so say four times nine, about 40 people in a platoon. So I'd be the platoon leader for that. They were my responsibility. So your responsibility was obviously training them, and you're, the people you were training were pilots. Well, not no. not then. I was in the Army. See, okay, that's ground you were in the force. Army during. So we were primarily artillery men. And if we didn't have the guns, we would have been infantry. So that's like when you see in the movies a platoon leader. That's what I was at. Right there, at a pretty young age. That's a little rare for a 21-year-old to be a platoon leader. That was my platoon. I was responsible for them. In the Army, we're taught, you know, i got to take care of my men so they get fed and that they're okay. And, and I'm the leader of the platoon. we got order to go do something. i got to, come on, men, let's go do it, which I like that too. <laughs> but I didn't do that very long, and, uh, and then I got changed and went to school. So then the war was over by the time I got mm-hmm. out of that, and... So then I was training for anything future that might happen. And uh, we had the Cuban crisis, uh, and that would be 63. At that time, I was working at the F-104 program, and they left me there to keep training because the, the Germans d- didn't get involved with that. That was our American problem, so we still had to keep the program going. That's just part of your job, every day's work. You're concerned. I don't think anyone is scared, but I think everyone's concerned. We had training sorties at those bases, uh, every day to keep your keep yourself a little bit current, but we'd be preparing every day, getting ready to do it. I had a ground job in Vietnam, so I didn't fly any airplanes. And what was your ground job? Turns out I was in headquarters, and I helped coordinate between the munitions to see that munitions that we needed at the different bases would be there. And then sometimes I'd get involved with maybe a, we had a goonie bird called Spooky, which they mounted a 50 caliber machine gun and a 7.6 millimeter machine gun in the side door. And also they had on the C-130, but C-47 type at a side door. So they'd fly like this and they'd shoot down here at the ground and usually with tracers. So sometimes I'd 
when I'd get off duty, I'd go back to my quarters and I'd sit on the roof and watch those spookies fly and you'd see the tracers shooting at different targets in Vietnam. And then you see it in the movies. Most people don't know what that is, but that was a spooky flight. First yes, I served there big. in 68. A squatter platoon actually went through my via that I was living in at the time, so I saw a few Viet Cong. They shot at me, actually. So I never told even my family about that. No, you didn't. So I have a hat yeah. that was in my locker that's got bullet holes through it. After I had left it, they did shoot up in that area, but I wasn't there. So Obviously, I mean, you said earlier, you can't be scared or you can't show that you're scared. You have to really... Calm yourself and get into a... Well, most of us uh, control ourselves pretty well because we're trained. That helps. Every once in a while, there'd be a mortar attack on Saigon. In fact, we had one just about the time, I guess, of the Tet Offensive in 68. We had a mortar attack either with that or a little before. One of those mortars landed close to... We had a, a lieutenant from the Marines as an attached officer in our headquarters, and he was in a barracks. And when that attack came at night, and they were instructed in that barracks to get, he was in the second floor, to get down to the lower floor to make sure you could get out. So he jumped out of bed and went, and by when he got to the top of the stairs to go down, a piece of shrapnel went through the building and hit him in the leg. So he tumbled all the way down the stairs. <laughs> and it drew blood, of course. So he gets signed up and he gets a purple heart for being wounded. Well, we were in a combat zone, so he got a purple heart for that. But also scared the hell out of me. People don't talk about their stories when they come back. Well, because most of them you don't like. Most of them involved uh, people bleeding around you. So those kind of casualties, uh, we'll talk about it among ourselves some because we were trained that. And maybe, uh, for example, I was a stockbroker later on and I had a guy that had been in the Army and been in Pacific. And he said he was in an attack where the Japanese were coming at him and said he he shot and he shot and he shot. And the guy kept coming because the Japanese had a system in the infantry to wrap their bodies with linen. So a bullet could go through it, wouldn't wouldn't kill you right away. You were going to die. But and the guy kept coming. So the guy didn't die until he got about six feet away from him and fell at his feet. And that made him completely sick. He, he, He couldn't hardly move after that episode. So that happens around you, and sometimes that's to your buddy. Well, and then, you know, I never had it happen, but what are, what are you going to do if you're with a couple of guys and the guy right next to you gets shot in the head or shot in the body and dies right there? And that happens, but it's very rare. It doesn't happen to too many. Unless you're in a real high battle where they kill most of you, then, of course, it happens. But then you don't have anyone left to tell about it. So, So war is terrible, no doubt about it. I'm all for the presidents that try to keep us out of war. I don't really, I don't want to go to war either. Even now, I don't want us to go to war. But if we have to, sometimes some of those people that attack you, you know, they're trained too, and they want to kill you. So you've got to, got to be prepared to stop that. And do you keep in touch with some of those fellows? Who Not you... too much. Uh, most of them are family men, and I think when they go home, they go home, and they don't necessarily try to forget it, but you do forget it. When you were an instructor, there's a lot of positive imprint there because you're yeah. you're obviously teaching them more than just a skill. You are teaching them well, I survival. Think I think you're teaching them attitude. Yeah. For example, um, I was an instructor pilot, and after I'd been there about a year teaching, I had a young man that I had taught, came back and was an instructor pilot and was my roommate. I'd been teaching maybe a year. Usually we went to the officer's club to eat supper together. He didn't show up that night. I find out at the officer's club he was killed that day on the runway. Oh, my gosh. Take off, his wingman hit him, 
and flipped the airplane over and crashed right on the runway. So, oh, and then when I was in Korea, another young man that I had taught flying F-100s, they were doing some training on the base at Osan, and there that was an atomic area, but we still had to fly the airplane to stay proficient. And they were making a, a practice let down to the field, and as they were pulling up, something happened to his F-100, and he rolled over and crashed on the runway. And I knew him fairly well. I was an occupation force later okay. in sixty. Okay. Yeah, the war was all over. But we were still prepared with bases all over the place in case Russia attacked us. So I, I lost a few friends that I knew as yeah. time went by. Also, I had a friend when I was at Big Springs Webb Air Force Base learning to fly the jets. And about the time I was graduating and getting my wings, I heard that a friend that I was a class of two ahead of me had also gone to Luke Air Force Base. He happened to own a light airplane, and I went out to the county field and flew with him a couple of times in his light airplane. And he had an emergency at Luke, and his gear wouldn't come down. And so they told him to fly over a mountain near Luke and at 10,000 feet and eject, because he'd probably get killed trying to get the airplane to land. He did. The canopy malfunction did not fire, but his seat functioned and cut him in half. <gasps> Oh, yeah. so oh my God! That happened about the time I was getting my wings. So I was asked if I still wanted to go to Luke. I said yes. You know, it bothered me, but I don't think it scared me. <laughs> wow! But you know that could have happened to me too. Yeah, you know about those things, but I guess you got to just put them in the back and know they're there. But uh, you press on anyway. All kinds of people do that. You know, guys in construction, they know they can get hurt in some big machinery. And they learn how to run it. They get a lot of confidence. They get good at it. So they get paid extra because, yeah, there's some more hazard to it. So I think it's similar to that. And you've got to put it back aside. If you're worried about it all the time, you'd never yeah, get anything done. If you were to inspire right now, what inspiration could you provide? Oh, I think life is very interesting, even when it's not very good. All kinds of things happen to people. And if you're doing things... I think that's what most people strive for. You're really doing that. You're striving to do a good job of what you're doing. The guys in the military do the same thing. And then sometimes you'll have a terrible thing happen to you and you got to overcome it some way. Well, in the military, we're just maybe a little better equipped to handle some of that, but we still got the same kind of problems. In a couple of sentences, I'd say anybody, man and woman that could, for their own learning and growing up, get in the service somewhere. Serve one or two years and get out. It just is a place to grow up in, and you learn all kinds of stuff. And most of the time now they're learning computers and all kinds of techniques to help them when they get out. So I think life is really working, doing things. If you got enough money, you don't have to actually work to make money, then work to help other people. And then I think you have a pretty busy and happy life, worthwhile life. And most of us drift to doing things we like to do. I hope you like what you're doing. You have little sections where, well, I'm not going to do that anymore, but try something different. Most of the time, those things work out if you work at it. You've got to work. Next week, Milton Herman shares his memoirs as a singing military jet pilot. Oh, say can you see? Wow. And that is such a wonderful place to end right here is... May as well. With your absolute wonderful voice and your services... And obviously, your absolute wonderful positive imprints. Thank you again, Mill. Well, you're welcome. Your positive imprint. What's your PI?